Hi, I'm Madeline. And I'm David. And this is The Harry Podcast. In this podcast, we will go through each chapter of the Harry Potter series, and we will have spoilers for everything in the series. So if you have not read the series yet, um, please go back and do that before you listen, because we will be referencing things that happen in the later books. Yes, and this podcast is really intended as a literary analysis companion to reading the series. However, uh, we understand that not everyone is going to be reading the books at the same pace that we are, um, so we will be reminding you of things that happen from time to time. So first we're just going to do a quick introduction of ourselves and our experience with Harry Potter. So um, I started reading the Harry Potter series, well my parents started reading it to me when I was probably about six or seven, I think in first grade. Um, and then I started reading them to myself later on. Um, I've reread the series a bunch of times, um, but I have not read all of them the same amount of times, I would say. Um, my favorite book changes a lot. Um, I think it's going to change throughout this podcast, but I will say the seventh book because that is what I have said since I finished the series. <laughs> um, and my favorite character is Luna Lovegood because... I just think that she is an amazing character who is often underestimated. I think she's a really strong person um, and a really positive just source of kindness in the books. Yeah, absolutely. I think Luna is a great choice because if you were to pick one character and say this is really the author making a statement about um, about people, it would be Luna because you know she's someone who's ostracized um, and she's someone who is bullied and picked on for being weird and different, but who doesn't mind any of that. She really doesn't care. Um, and she remains a positive source of love and friendship and companionship for our heroes and for the rest of the characters in this series throughout dark times and happy times and everything in between. Yeah, I agree. Um, why don't you tell us about your first experience with Harry Potter? So uh, my parents started reading the Harry Potter series to me when I was, I think, probably around six or seven, they started reading The Sorcerer's Stone. I remember my dad reading it to me mostly when I was going to bed and things like that. Um, and the first one that I picked up on my own was Goblet of Fire when I was in second grade. Uh, and I would say my favorite book would be um, Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. Uh, I just really love the writing style of that book and how sort of comical and lighthearted it seems compared to the events that are happening in it. Um, it's a really good contrast between sort of light humor and dark humor. Um, my favorite character I'd say would be Sirius Black. I think that he's an excellent anti-hero. He's a really good um, reflection of Harry's sort of psyche. Um, he's there at, at really big transformation points throughout the series. Um, you know, Prisoner of Azkaban is a really dark turning point. Goblet of Fire, he's there as sort of a mentor figure. And then Harry tragically loses him as a mentor figure in the next book. Um, which is very obviously troubling for him. So I think he's a great character, very well-rounded and very well-written. Lumos. This will be episode one, Harry Podcast and the Boy Who Lived. So the first segment we'll do for each chapter is a synopsis. This will be a brief synopsis of the chapter. As we said, you would ideally be reading along, but if that's not possible, we'll just give you a quick summary of what happens in this chapter. So in this first chapter, The Boy Who Lived, we meet the Dursleys, who are not very nice people. Uh, strange things are seem to be happening around the country. 
Um, Vernon also notices a cat on the wall outside of his home, which makes him suspicious along with the other things that have been occurring in the country. Um, after the Dursleys go to sleep, the cat turns into Professor McGonagall. Dumbledore then appears, and they discuss the fact that Voldemort has fallen. This happened when he was killing Lily and James, Lily being Petunia Dursley's sister. And Harry, their son, who's one years old, survived. He is already famous in the wizarding world for having taken down Voldemort in this way. And then Hagrid shows up on Sirius's bike with baby Harry. Um, the three of the adults leave Harry on the doorstep with a note for Petunia explaining what has happened to Harry to lead him there and what needs to happen in the future, um, namely that she will take care of him. Uh, that's as far as we know in this chapter. Great. So now that we've gone over just a little bit of the synopsis of the chapter, let's um, go on to our next segment, which is going to be talking about the chapter title and what it means uh, in the literary context and um, all of its possible meanings. So this chapter title is The Boy Who Lived. Obviously, this has huge significance um, as a sort of alternate title for our main character, Harry Potter. Um, so what are your thoughts about this chapter title? So I think it's interesting um, because this theme of the boy who lived uh, continues throughout all of the books. Harry continues to survive many improbable situations, usually at the hands of Voldemort. Um, and he always manages to survive them. Um, at the end, he even comes back to life after he dies, um, which is really the horcrux inside him dying. Um, but he really has this sort of, this theme of resurrection and continuing to live, um, that comes up a lot. Yeah, I think, um, I think, uh, perseverance and possibly even against all odds would be good descriptors for, like, the way that Harry continues to survive. Uh, I think no one expected him to survive when Voldemort attacked the first time. No one expected him to survive against Voldemort and Quirrell at the end of this book or against the Basilisk at the end of the next book or in the Triwizard Tournament in book four. I mean, there's a million times that we could have said, this is the end for Harry Potter, that everyone else said that, and against all odds, he survived. So, I mean, yeah, The Boy Who Lived is a very apt description. Um, but what I think is interesting is it's kind of a wonky title, don't you think? I mm -hmm. mean, it's not exactly something that would come up in terms of like an organic slang per se. So how do you think that people came up with that? Yeah, well, it is interesting because it is the first title that he's given before he's even conscious of having one. Um, later there's titles like The Chosen One that are also controversial in terms of Harry. Um, but I think that this title probably likely came about due to all these rumors that um, McGonagall and others in this chapter reference that are flying around about how Voldemort was defeated um, and the sort of lore and almost mythology that has already been created um, surrounding Harry, even though this event just happened the day ago. So, so yeah, so it, it's, you think it's born out of rumor and speculation and these wild, fantastical stories that also happen to be true. Yeah. I think that's a good way of, of putting it, yeah. Okay, so our next segment will generally be our plot segment. So here we'll discuss the major plot points that occurred during this chapter and also just interesting points that we find um, for discussion related to the events of the book. 
So this chapter actually starts with Vernon um, and is narrated by an omniscient narrator, which happens in about five chapters in the book, um, in the book series. Right. Well, J.K. Rowling always uses that sort of third-person perspective, but um, this chapter is one of the few where uh, there is uh, an example of someone who is not Harry being the limited perspective that we get. So typically it's a third-person limited from Harry's perspective. This chapter and five others that happen in later books are third-person limited from a separate character's perspective. And I actually think what's interesting about this one in particular is that it goes from third-person limited from Uncle Vernon's perspective to an omniscient perspective at the end of the chapter when Vernon goes to sleep and we see the events unfolding outside of the window. Yeah, so I don't want to make this claim necessarily, but I think it may be the only chapter that really switches in that way um, in the series. I would say Spinner's End from uh, Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince does a similar thing in that it doesn't have a limited perspective. It's it's more omniscient. Um, but yeah, it's pretty unique in that regard. The switching, I think, is pretty Yeah, the unique. switching is pretty unique. Um, so, you know, that's just sort of about the writing of the of this beginning of the chapter. But we're starting with Vernon. And I think that's really interesting because Vernon is sort of seeing and hearing these strange things that are references to the wizarding world and not really understanding what they mean and being kind of frightened of them. And I think this is really similar to the reader's perspective coming into this book and trying to figure out what's going on. And so I feel like we're really with Vernon in this. So I think this is kind of a cool way of doing this exposition because um, we're really along with Vernon. But what's interesting is that we actually go further than Vernon not by choice because Vernon is not getting as much as we are getting um, as this sort of omniscient narrator. But we also go further than him by choice because he has sort of shut himself off to these clues about the wizarding world, um, whereas we are continuing on reading the book. And so we are mm -hmm. more open-minded than him already. Right. I mean, he's a very close-minded character, obviously. He, he's, he loves his little bubble, his little normal world. And anything that, that would contradict that little normal world, he either tries immediately to forget about it or um, says that it's nothing and explains it away in some regard. So it's not a surprise that while he is ignoring all these little clues that everyone's getting, the reader and Vernon are getting at the same time, we're picking up on this and we're entering this new strange world where interesting things are happening. And he's not. He's going to bed thinking that, you know, some weird stuff happened today, but it's not going to affect me. That's like what he says right before he goes to bed. And I think the text says something like, how very wrong he was, which is a great line. So each chapter we will go into which characters we have been introduced to so far so that we can get a count of who we know so far in the series. In this first chapter, we're actually introduced to a lot of important characters. We're introduced to Vernon, Petunia, and Dudley Dursley. We're introduced to Professor McGonagall, Dumbledore, and Hagrid, and also baby Harry, although he does not have really his own perspective in this chapter. Right. And uh, we'll talk a little bit later about how those characters were introduced and the way that J.K. Rowling writes about each of them, I think is very fascinating. Um, but I want to talk about something else which happens sort of at the end of this chapter, um, which is, you know, Albus Dumbledore arrives in Privet Drive with the plan to give baby Harry Potter to his aunt and uncle for them to take care of him for the rest of his, his life until he comes of age. 
What I was thinking when I read this chapter, which was new for me on this read-through, is how did Dumbledore get put in charge of managing Harry's future? I mean, he, he's if you, if you think about his actual role in society, yeah, he's the leader of the resistance against Voldemort, but he also is just a school teacher. So, like, how come the Ministry of Magic wasn't swooping down on... Uh, Harry's house to scoop him up and take him to whatever the wizarding equivalent of like child protective services would be or something like that. You know, how come it was this headmaster Dumbledore who, who, who came to have possession of Harry's future and well-being? Yeah, I think that's really interesting and something that I also never considered before this chapter. It just seems sort of assumed that Dumbledore is, of course, in charge, but it doesn't really make a lot of sense when you think about um, how this happened. I guess what I sort of came to as a conclusion was that since Dumbledore was protecting the Potter's house using the Fidelius charm, he likely got some sort of notice when that was broken because he was the one that cast oh, the spell. okay, yeah. And so he probably um, got notice about that and then uh, immediately sent Hagrid to go see what was happening or get Harry. It's a little bit unclear. I wouldn't say it totally aligns, but I think that he would get some words since he was responsible for protecting that house. Another thing that I think is interesting is his decision to put Harry with the Dursleys. Later on, we'll discuss the conversation specifically that he has with McGonagall about um, putting Harry with the Dursleys, which she is a little bit confused about. And I think this is an interesting decision to discuss, which is, you know, why did Dumbledore really choose to have Harry grow up with muggles as opposed to in the wizarding world mm -hmm. being taken care of by anyone else but the Dursleys? Yeah, I mean, you'd, you'd think after after a few chapters more of reading about how awful the Dursleys have been to Harry, that any reader would go, well, why didn't he pick anybody else? I mean, even a foster home would have been better. But, I mean, I think Dumbledore had a couple of reasons that were explicit and then a few that I think were implicit. Um, the explicit ones are, and we get these over a long period of time, um, over, you know, the first five or six books or so. Um, one of them is that he needed this old magic that is still present in Harry's family blood, um, to protect him. So whenever Harry lives with a blood relative, the protection of his mother and her sacrifice can be, uh, extrapolated to include that area, I guess is like a brief explanation of that magic. So he needed to at least call home a place where his blood relative resides. Uh, in this case, it's his aunt Petunia. So I think that's one of the explicit reasons. Again, he, he says to McGonagall, if he grows up with wizards, he's going to be in the situation where he's famous before he can walk and talk, and he'll be famous for something he can't even remember. That would be enough to make anyone big-headed or narcissistic or feel like they have a sense of importance beyond their station. Um, and that can be, I mean, I don't want to say traumatizing, but it can be hard for a young person growing up and trying to figure out who they are if they keep being told over and over who you are is something great and, and beyond understanding. Um, that can really mess with development. And I think Dumbledore really wanted to avoid that. Yeah, I agree. And I mean, I think those are the main reasons. I th think it is interesting to imagine in a way what you know, what would be another option and what would happen if Harry had grown up in the wizarding world and how would the events of the series maybe have been different? I'm not really sure we can speculate on that now, but I just do think that that is interesting to consider that this was a decision that 
Dumbledore made and was, you know, affected the course of Harry's life for, in, for good and for bad. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, if you think, I think if you consider the other options that Dumbledore may have had at the time, uh, it was whoever was in the Order of the Phoenix and uh, James's friends, who one of them had betrayed him, the other one was in hiding, and the other one was a werewolf. So I don't really think those are great options either. He may have just decided that this was the most realistic option. You know, it's a blood relative. It's someone who he can count on to provide some sense of normalcy, even if they bully him really badly. I don't know. It doesn't seem like that bad an option if you're Dumbledore. Although, you know, looking back with 2020 hindsight, it is pretty traumatizing for Harry. Yeah, I just think that's something interesting to consider, especially as we think forward in terms of Dumbledore's character, the power that he has over Harry and Harry's story and his future. Um, I think that's interesting to see that this really started from the very beginning, from Mm -hmm. maybe even before Harry was born. Our next section is going to be talking about the writing. So really J.K. Rowling's contributions to the chapter in terms of her style and the literary devices that she used in this chapter. The first interesting thing that I noticed with the writing was J.K. Rowling's characterization of each of these very important characters that have just been introduced in this first chapter. Mm-hmm. In just a few pages, or even a few sentences in some cases, just a word here and there, we really get a good sense of all the characters that are introed here. And I think you had an example of someone that you felt like was really well characterized. Oh yeah, I mean, I think that if you look at Hagrid as a character, he gets maybe two or three pages of, like, quote-unquote screen time in this chapter, but we already understand so much about him. I mean, before he enters the scene, he's introduced as being late, being potentially unreliable from McGonagall, being trustworthy to the point of death from Dumbledore. Um, And then we see him, and he's this giant of a man who's carrying a baby in his arms. Um, And he's deferent, and he's respectful, and he's polite, and he's caring. He even cries when they have to give Harry away. Um, And he says he'll miss James and and Lily so much. Um, So it's really, it creates this image, a very powerful one, of this very kind, gentle giant. And I think that's an incredible characterization from from J.K. Rowling in just maybe, I think, two or three pages of text. I agree. And I think that we really just get, in general, a good characterization of everyone in this chapter. You know, we know that the Dursleys are awful already. J.K. Rowling hasn't even explicitly said that since she's really been writing from Vernon's perspective for the most part. But she, we get the sense um, yeah. that they're not the best. We also get the sense that um, Dumbledore and McGonagall are very important people in the wizarding world and very interesting people. We don't know a lot about them, but we do get a sense of sort of their personality types. Um, Mm -hmm. So I just think that she does a really good job of giving you a lot of introduction and not a lot of time. Yeah, even going back to that thing that we talked about earlier with Vernon's perspective, uh, it's a great use of his perspective because there's this great line that characterizes him as well as sort of representing his worldview where uh, he says something like, um, he had a great day. He yelled at five different people. Yeah. Uh, he made some phone calls and he yelled a bit more. He was having a great day or something like that. Uh, and it just shows you like that is a good day for him when he gets to yell at people. So it shows you what kind of a person he is. It doesn't just 
tell you he's a bad person. It, it really shows it through his own actions and his own narration of his life. Right. And then we also see um, the one time that we really see other characters commenting on the Dursleys is when McGonagall sort of says, I've been watching these people all day. How can you leave baby Harry with these people? So we get even more of a sense there that, you know, she is kind of doubting this decision because of she's just seen a small glimpse, just as we have. Yeah, she's yeah. seen a small glimpse of the Dursleys, but she already knows their bad news. Yeah. Which leads me into my next uh, point that I wanted to talk about, um, which is the quote-unquote information dump scene that happens between McGonagall and Dumbledore. Um, and so for those of you who are listening who uh, don't know what an information dump is, it's just a word that we use to describe um, the introduction of a lot of information to a reader through the use of a two-person or three-person conversation. Um, in this case, it's a dialogue between McGonagall and Dumbledore. And the reason why I wanted to bring this up is because um, J.K. Rowling uses a lot of these throughout the series but this first example isn't really the strongest one, and I wanted to talk about why that is and some things that she improved on later um, as the series goes on. So one of the first things that I noticed when I was rereading this is that um, McGonagall and Dumbledore talk about things that they have no reason to talk about. McGonagall at one point reminds Dumbledore that he's the only wizard that you know who ever feared. And Dumbledore, I think, responds or has already brought up that uh, McGonagall should use, you know, whose real name, Voldemort. And both of these little interactions, while they may seem perfectly fine on the surface, really don't make any sense when you consider that this is probably a, a relationship that's existed for decades. And they've been fighting Voldemort for years already, so they would know that Dumbledore is the only wizard that you know who's ever feared, and they would know that Dumbledore doesn't like it when people don't use his real name. So there's no reason for them to reiterate that now in this conversation. The only reason that that's included is for the reader's benefit, which makes it very plain that this is an information dump. And there are a couple other examples of her doing that in this chapter. And I wanted to contrast that with um, the information dump that happens in Goblet of Fire in the first chapter. Um, there is an information dump between Wormtail and Voldemort when they're in the, the Riddle House. And um, Voldemort and Wormtail are having a conversation that logically needs to happen. They're talking about Bertha Jorkins. They're talking about a plot to kidnap Harry Potter and to resurrect Voldemort's body, but they're talking about it in roundabout terms, and they're talking about it using information that they've just gathered. So logically, it's a conversation that needs to happen in that place and time, and it's being shown to the reader so that the reader can get that information too, but it's not as though it's an illogical conversation. Um, and so in that way, we can really see how J.K. Rowling's writing has evolved over the years. I mean, she's gotten a lot better at at least this one um, writing trick that we've noticed. Yeah, I agree. And I also think that, you know, as we will continue to talk about, this chapter is a really good first chapter. And I think that for this being the first chapter of the first book of this series, she does a pretty good job. But I agree that they wouldn't be talking about this information in this way. But I do think that, you know, it's, it's pretty good. But yeah. there are, and in general, she does a good job of if you think of this first chapter as an information dump, she really does a good job of setting up the world in that way. Absolutely. And I think it's a minor quip, you know, that I have with it. Uh, I think that something that she does really well to transition is irony. So J.K. Rowling loves using these little ironic little bits, um, quips here and there, where, you know, the narrator will say something like, um, you know, the Dursleys were perfectly normal, thank you very much. 
uh, and they never had anything weird or strange happen to them. And then later on in this very chapter, weird stuff starts happening to them. Uh, there's tons of that throughout this chapter and throughout this whole book, really. J.K. Rowling loves using irony as humor, especially if it's like really, really quick little one-off lines. And one of my favorite little ironic nods to the reader in this chapter was um, when the weatherman comes on in the evening news report that Vernon and Petunia are watching, his name is Jim McGuffin, um, which is a cute little nod to the readers. Uh, a MacGuffin, for those of you who don't know, is an object... Um, that in a story, the characters need to go on a quest to retrieve uh, in order for the plot to progress. Uh, obvious examples of that within this series would be the Sorcerer's Stone, uh, Horcruxes, you know, some some knowledge that they need for the Triwizard Tournament, uh, the Prophecy in Book 5. Um, so those are all MacGuffins because it's just an object that's put in there as a literary device to advance the plot. Uh, if you obtain the object, you advance the plot. So J.K. Rowling is throwing in this guy's name, Jim McGuffin, as sort of a nod to uh, the the more educated readers about what this book might be about and what the what the literary device might be that they have to go after. Um, which is actually uh, a great transition into my next point, which is about foreshadowing. Uh, Rowling uses a ton of great examples of foreshadowing in this chapter. Um, I would say several of which are really quick payoffs. And several of which are long-term sort of Chekhov's gun payoffs that happen over the course of the whole series. So a really quick example of one of those short-term bits of foreshadowing that happen in this chapter, there are several of them, is um, the appearance of a very strange cat on Privet Drive who's sitting on a little brick wall. Um, and Vernon notices this almost immediately and he thinks to himself, what a strange cat. It's looking at a map. Cats don't read maps. Now it's looking at a sign. Cats can't read signs either. What's going on? And this is a really great setup for later on in the chapter, the cat transforms into a human. Uh, and that's great foreshadowing because we've, we've seen little tiny clues. The cat's reading a map. Cat's looking at a sign. This is clearly not a normal cat. Uh, and then later on in the same chapter, payoff. Cat's a person. And there are also a bunch of examples of long-term foreshadowing in this chapter. Um, for example, the mention of Sirius Black... Uh, the use of the put-outer or the deluminator, as we later find out, which is a tool that um, Harry uses later in the series. And even the idea of a Horcrux is introduced in a very vague way um, due to adults in this chapter noticing Harry's scar and thinking about the scar as just a symbol that continues throughout the series um, in terms of Harry's connection with Voldemort. It's just a huge symbol and... A huge mm -hmm. plot device. Some might say the, you know, the major twist in the story. I would say at least very much the central uh, plot device of the series is right. Harry's scar. I mean, it marks him as different. Uh, it marks him as the only one who can defeat Voldemort later on, we find out. And it marks him as the person who has a piece of Voldemort's soul stuck in his head. So it definitely sets him apart and is a great symbol of everything from fate to prophecy to perseverance. But I really love the allusion to Sirius in this chapter. I mean, Hagrid just briefly, briefly mentions it. You know, I borrowed the bike from Sirius Black, and we're not even going to hear anything else about Sirius Black for two more books. So it's a really great, like, sort of wink and nod to people who go back and read this one later on, and they say, oh my god, I didn't even know that um, when they first read this chapter. 
So for this next section, um, what we've decided is that we want to pick out our favorite passages or quotes from the chapter and uh, read them aloud and then talk about why we liked it so much. Um, And for mine, I picked a passage from page 14, um, which introduces Hagrid's character with a physical description of him. And it says, If the motorcycle was huge, it was nothing to the man sitting astride it. He was almost twice as tall as a normal man and at least five times as wide. He looked simply too big to be allowed, and so wild. Long tangles of bushy black hair and beard hid most of his face. He had hands the size of trash can lids, and his feet in their leather boots were like baby dolphins. In his vast, muscular arms, he was holding a bundle of blankets. And the reason that I love that description is that it's so visual. I mean, it's a great example of visual imagery. Um, But it also gives you a sense of what he's like as a person, too. And I alluded to this earlier. I mean, we get this really great gentle giant vibe from Hagrid. He's he's so huge, but he's carrying this little bundle of a baby in his arms wrapped in swaddling blankets. And it's just such a cute little descriptive image there. Yeah, I agree. I think that it really does. That one paragraph could just tell you all you need to know about Hagrid. I also really love the line, too big to be allowed. Yeah, that's a great line. I think that's just great, and that's just uh, kind of an example of J.K. Rowling's writing style where she just writes sentences that feel so true that are kind of silly like that. Yeah, absolutely. She's great at those little, like, one-liners that feel really, like, real and funny. Okay, and for my passage, I chose the last paragraph on page 17, which is the last paragraph of the chapter. A breeze ruffled the neat hedges of Privet Drive, which lay silent and tidy under the inky sky, the very last place you would expect astonishing things to happen. Harry Potter rolled over inside his blankets without waking up. One small hand closed on the letter beside him, and he slept on, not knowing he was special, not knowing he was famous, not knowing he would be woken in a few hours' time by Mrs. Dursley's scream as she opened the front door to put out the milk bottles nor that he would spend the next few weeks being prodded and pinched by his cousin Dudley. He couldn't know that at this very moment, people meeting in secret all over the country were holding up their glasses and saying in hushed voices to Harry Potter, the boy who lived. So I really love this passage because I just think it's a really good section of writing and it reminds me of a lot of other books where you have this sort of multi-perspective paragraph where you're sort of looking back and looking ahead and thinking, you know, what this character didn't know is that this was happening. And I just think it's really beautifully written and just gives you a sense of excitement and forward momentum into the whole series. Absolutely. And it's a great note to end on in this chapter. Of course, the last words of the chapter are the same as the chapter title. It's always a great little wink and nod to the reader. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're right, it gives you a huge impetus of like, all right, now fast forward to when he's 11. I almost think reading this paragraph again that, you know, this paragraph could be the end of a book. Yeah. I feel like this is this is that type of paragraph that could really, you know, conclude this book if it were telling another story. And I just think that that's really interesting because it's, It's the beginning, but it could easily be the end. I mean, it almost feels like a pilot TV show or Mm -hmm. like a short story in that regard. Like you could end this, like you could end a story here. Right. And it would feel complete and it would feel interesting and captivating. And I think if, if JK Rowling had only written this chapter and never written anything else about Harry Potter, I mean, obviously it would be very sad and we wouldn't be doing this (laughs) podcast, but it would be a great short story. 
you know? I agree. And, and yeah. I think that that's, there's really something to be said for having a chapter be able to stand on its own as a literary work and have merit like that. That's really cool. Yeah. So for our final segment, we will be talking about one new thing that we learned on this read-through of this particular chapter. So we both read the series multiple times, but we still learn or pay attention to different things on each read-through. So for me, rereading this first chapter of the whole series, I was really surprised because I forgot that Sirius Black was mentioned by name. I remembered his bike, but I didn't remember that he was mentioned by name in this first chapter. So mm-hmm. I think that that's really interesting. And as you mentioned, he's one of your favorite characters. He's one of mine too. And he's a very important character in the series. And it's surprising to me that he was mentioned already because I think of him as just appearing much later. Yeah. And I, I want to go off on a brief, but I think important tangent here. It makes you wonder how much J.K. Rowling had planned out already when she wrote this chapter. I mean, it almost blows your mind to think about how many things had to go into planning this series of events that led to the writing of this chapter. I mean, you think about Sirius Black's bike being mentioned, the implications that that has. So um, Sirius Black is a character. He has a bike. He's there at the aftermath of James and Lily's death. And he says, I don't need this anymore, basically. So I'm going to give it to you. So that has implications that go all the way, you know, two books in the future and beyond that she would have had to plan just by writing that. Or or maybe she, in her genius, just adapted the story to fit what she had already written. By mentioning Sirius Black, she thought, maybe I can write a new character that was involved somehow. It's possible. But I like to think that she had it all planned out from the beginning. I do. And I, I don't think that that's a tangent because I think it's really important um especially with this first chapter because jk rowling has had these myths created around her you know which may be true related to her writing on napkins the first chapter of harry potter or writing on the train and you know being in scotland and all that stuff so i think that that's pretty interesting and just to think about how much did she plan and you know we'll never really know but i do think that from interviews and things that we've heard that she had a pretty good outline of the entire series when she started and maybe even had some of these details related to Sirius and all that. So it is pretty interesting. What was a new thing that you noticed during this chapter? Well, it wasn't really a thing that I noticed so much as thought about, and that was um, what I brought up earlier when we were talking about plot, which is uh, how did Dumbledore get appointed Harry's sort of pseudo-guardian in Mm -hmm. this case? Um, and I'm really glad that we got to talk about that because it was something that I just noticed while I was reading and I, and I thought, you know, this, like, we all kind of assume that Dumbledore's the guy in charge, but if we examine it a little more closely, it doesn't quite hold up as much as we would like it to. Yeah. So I'm glad that we got to talk that out because that was, that was cool for me to, to read that again and notice that. Yeah, I agree. That's one of those things that seems kind of obvious as a, as something that you would think about, like, how did Dumbledore even get to be in charge of the situation? But, right. You know, I it was not something that I thought about. Either. Because of the way that he's presented as a character emanating this sort of like power and respect and age and wisdom, um, I think more, most importantly, you know, we just kind of assume that he's like the guy. Um, but, you know, clearly on, on uh, you know, another read through, you start to think, you know, why isn't the Ministry of Magic handling this? Or why isn't like some, you know. And why does Dumbledore have so much power over Harry and his future. I think that's something that's really interesting to 
to keep track of as we continue on in the series. Yeah, and I'm sure that will keep coming up because it is one of the really one of the biggest questions in the series for me anyway. Well, thank you all for listening to our first episode of the Harry Podcast, Harry Podcast and the Boy Who Lived. If you have any questions or you'd like to contact us with any comments or concerns, please email us at harrypodcast7 at gmail.com. We'd love to get your questions or comments. Thank you all for listening. Thanks. Knox.